a dog for him for a week for a, for a couple of pennies. He was. Oh, he was a good man. He was the best man came round in a year. I can't see anybody would beat him because he got up from nothing. I was married to a son of Paddy the Copst, Packy the Cop, and he he's dead since October 1958. So the boss was, as we as he was called, Paddy the Cop, lived with us from I got married until his death on the 24th of June, 66. So you looked after him then in his final years? We looked after him in his final years and did very little trouble he was. He was very easy to get on with, a very good, kind man. We always got on very well together. He didn't change an awful lot in manner, or I should say in appearance. He didn't age, you know, he didn't look his years at all. And he was quite... He was a hard-working man. His heart and soul was in the Temple Cone Co-op Society. He lived for it. I say it was his first thought at night and his last thought. His last thought at night, I should say, and his first thought in the morning. He was a very good living man, a great Catholic, a great churchgoer, a great Christian. Paddy's great strength was that he hadn't any idea on anything except the Cope itself, and he dedicated himself completely to it. And... Um, the, he, it was really his his venture. Uh, the, the committee was a very dim body in the background to be con- to be to be consulted when he had made the decisions, or to be drawn and to, to endorse it when he had made the decisions. But um, he really never had a, had a selfish thought apart, I think, from the, his dedication to the hope. He had that great. And he really had that great touch. He was a good businessman, but nothing more than that. The area was was roused, and the area rallied to him. There was a good deal more knowledge of cooperation in that area than perhaps in any other part of Ireland, on account of the intercourse with Scotland. Well, I knew him very well because he used to spend a lot of his time in my home. My mother was his sister. And he, uh, they didn't get along so well. They used to sometimes be very annoyed at some of the things he would do. And I remember one time that they wanted him to pay more wages to the factory workers. And he said it would be better to put a bite in everybody's mouth than some people eating cake. He was a lovable, humorous type of fellow. Grand and, and full, of, full of fun, you know. And as far as being, if you're a clergyman, he just lay down before you. He was full of, full of regard for you. And plumas, a certain amount of plumas. He was full of rascality too, you know. I remember one occasion he wanted me to say mass out in Clindra Rock. And That's a mass rock. Uh, a mass rock, yeah. Which is right opposite the place he was born. In That's fact. right. He claimed that he was born on it, actually. <laughs> when, he wanted permission, when he wanted permission to have mass said there, he went to the bishop... And he said, my lord, would you give me permission to say mass on the rock, or get mass said on the rock I was born on? <laughs> well, it was almost true. <laughs> the house is right, right uh, under the rock. Yeah, yeah mm. that's right. But anyhow, when he asked me, he was all as usual, all smiles and everything, you know. And for some reason or other, I was reluctant at the particular time to go up. And when he saw this, he changed like lightning. And the steel came through him. You know, the steel of the character came through, and gone was every vestige of a smile. Well, he says, if you don't want to do it, there's plenty more will. And walked away as angry as could be. 
He'd never wear a collar and tie, and he never wore an overcoat. He'd go off to Dublin, but he would take the collar and tie off and stick it in his pocket, you know, he'd never... It was one time in Dublin when the factory was going good down here, and he, he saw this lady walking around O'Connell Street, and she had a fair ale jumper on. And he decided he would follow her around and take the pattern of the fair ale jumper. So he took out a notebook, and he was taking the pattern as he was going along, following her everywhere through the street. And she called a guard, so he had a time explaining to the guard what he was doing, following <laughs> the lady. <laughs> yes. So he said, it wasn't you I was following, it was your jumper. <laughs> and then he would use the pattern he himself. He would use the pattern in the, in the factory then. Paddy the Cope was just a man about, uh, I would say, a, a wee stout man, not very big. I, I don't know, I couldn't just uh, describe just what height, but he wasn't too high. He wasn't much more than uh, four, uh, five foot, or five foot so many inches. But uh, he was a stout little man. He, as far as I know about him, he went to school in them days. And in them days, the people here used to have, you would only spend uh, three months would be the most and not very many would get three months you spent three months at school and the other nine months had to be utilized for to try to earn money for the big families every house in them and uh, 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 this parish in them days had from 10 to 14 of a family Patrick Gallagher, afterwards known as Paddy the Cope, was born on Christmas night 1871 in the townland of Clindra, about three miles west of Dunlow in the Rosses of Donegal. He was the second eldest of nine children, seven girls and two boys. His schooling was scanty, and he has described in his autobiography how, at the age of ten, he walked the 37 miles from Clindra to Ballybuffet on his way to the hiring fair in Strabane. His nephew-in-law, Michael James Gallagher, who lives just beside the ancestral home, told us what those early years were like. When he was 12 years of age, I'm sent some other boy left here and I walked up to Fintown. And he used to go train that in Fintown to Derry. And uh, they got in as far as... They came off of Straban, down to Derry, and then came back up again to Straban. And... Uh, They've seen this this farmer anyhow. Or this farmer seen the two boys standing at this corner anyhow. The town clock, I used to call it. And uh, he asked them what they wanted. So this boy says, I want three pound ten. This Paddy the Cope now. And uh, your man told him to take a walk up and down the street to see, to see what kind of build had he. So he admired him anyhow. You used to always be a small stout punch. So he thought he would suit him very well anyhow. And when he came back, your man offered him £2.10. So this other man at the time made the deal and he made it £3 anyhow. So I got in a trap and he went out to the home, out to the farm anyhow. And from the farmer's wife seen him anyhow, she gave him a bucket and she says, come on out here to milk the cow. So Paddy never milked a cow in his life before, so he couldn't. <laughs> so 
the farmer's wife says, come in to the farmer, well, I think you have done this to many houses, I think we'll put him home again. So the farmer says, no, he's a good stout neck and we'll do fine for the harvest in here. I think it's two, three pounds he got for the six months. Mm. Next step after that was Scotland. That'll be for the Tatty Hogan, would it? I think he went the Tatty Hogan for one year and then he met some man the Tatty Hogan and he got to work in the pits. And he can be a good boozer in his young day early days and uh, he stayed over there in Scotland uh, he, he wasn't married that time I don't no. think no and uh, his father had to go over for him and to come back home here so uh, he got I think he got married in years after that and he got off the booze on the his wife obviously had a big influence on him had she she was a good help to him I think he would never do anything unless he would ask her advice on it first uh, she would tell him to go ahead, he would, but if she, if she would stop him, he, would, he wouldn't ask to go against her in here. His wife, Sally, certainly had a great influence on Paddy's future, and so had Scotland. Mickey Joe Boyle of Ireland's near Burtonport. Paddy, the club started in the Terbracks along with the, in the mines, the, uh, in the shell mines, and then he came, it was up in the mountains, and he came to the cooperative for to arrange for boots and beer and all to be taken up and he discovered from what he, the discount he got that he came over here and started the cup. When he came over he started very small. With the result, uh, with all the, all the people who were against him, the shopkeepers had a meeting you see and they, uh, they held meetings everywhere. And anybody who was dealing in a shop at that time, who was getting credit, everyone was drawing credit, they had to go at night to the cup, or if they were found going to the cup, they would get no credit after, till Paddy got the cup got going on. People would go there and get the stuff off these shops, you see, and uh, they didn't know what price they were paying for, just get the stuff and... Then from the bill will come probably at the, uh, the end of the year. They wouldn't know what, people didn't tally up or didn't know what pricing was. They might be paying four or five times the price of everything, you see. They didn't even know it. Aye, the people seen into it that, that, that when Paddy started up, that even that you, you couldn't pay for it on the spot, well, you got a ticket or something, you knew the price of it, yeah. And I think if you couldn't pay for it then, if you only give them a day's work, like, well, that kind of squared up things or helped them out some way. So that's why this lady, my mother here, said she went to, he went to jail. Uh, there was another big store there in Dunlow to Edward Boyles. And he was running for a county councillor. And the copeman was running for a county, county councillor. So the copeman was up on the platform anyway, and he was making a speech. And uh, he mentioned something to these Gambine men. So he was put in jail for six months. And uh, eventually he got out of jail anyway and reinstated again. And, this is how. Oh, they're a big night the night he came. I heard them saying their lorries lined the way and <coughs> bonfires from Dury right down to low. They're glad to see him back again. Paddy the Cope, in fact, spent only a couple of days in jail after he had refused to go under a rule of bail to be of good behaviour. The charge against him was a slight enough one that he had incited the law abiding people of the Rosses to commit a breach of the peace by threatening that he would kill Gombinism. However, he was now the people's hero in the fight against the traders of Dunlow. Here in this country, you had people they called Gambian men. 
Now, I'm not going to mention any names, I'm going to take nobody into it, or nobody out of it, but there was men here in Ireland as bad as what the landlords were in England. Do you know what they used to do? They would, it didn't make any difference whether you had money or whether you hadn't money. You got credit till the end of the year, do you understand? On your purchases. You got a book, all your purchases was marked in the book, whether you had money or whether you hadn't money, it wouldn't be taken to the end of the year. The price had to be paid for whatever the goods cost. Do you understand me? And very near as much interest or what they call gambling on what was purchased. That was, so to speak, paid twice. And then they, the had, they had a grip on the poor people as they well. Had they had a were grip under on the poor, they were under obligation because they used to, uh, the, they had no other option only to try and get all the possibly good from these people. And they had that grip on them and they couldn't... Well, Paddy had a big struggle then against the Gombean men before he was Paddy able to had, establish the court. Paddy had to fight the Gombean men. And he had to fight many a man. He was the greatest man that ever was. He had an exceptional great patience. If he didn't get on, you couldn't uh, get him to quit. If he didn't get on now, He'd have another try go. again, have another go, and he was full of self-determination, and uh, he kept on going, 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 and uh, uh, they got up again. He stopped when he came across here first. Whatever he seen in the cooperative movement over by, it was over in Scotland that he 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 got the instinct uh, that he had uh, about cooperation. Uh, whatever he seen over by. Uh, he uh, came to the conclusion that uh, it wouldn't be a bad preposition if he could uh, carry on the same here. 73-year-old Willie Dornan of Crovey, whose father subscribed one of the 14 half-crowns on which the Temple Crown Co-op was founded in 1906. How that came about, we now hear from Paddy the Copeman himself in a recording made by Sean McRaymond in Sean Kennedy's house in Dunlow 25 years ago. After I got married, Sally and I went over to Scotland. I was a miner, and I ran into a, what was known then as a soft place. And were not in a few years. I was earning a pound a day. In a few years, we had lodgers, and the, she ran the house and the lodgers. And I was not not very long till we got seven or eight had seven or eight hundred pounds saved. So we made up there a baby coming then and the sister wrote to her and said, Sally, you must come home. Your baby must be Irish. And Sally came home and then I came home after her. And we bought a little place out in Clindra. And after we started to work on the little farm in it, we began to inquire about artificial manures and Sally was good education. I couldn't read, but she read something about nitrogen, and I came in to look for nitrogen, and the trader wouldn't supply me with nitrogen. She didn't stock it. And then we met. The neighbours all carried... We in my house the night, and my father's house the next night, and the neighbour's house the next night. All the townland gathered together, and they would sing songs, dance, and tell stories. And I told about the artificial manure, so we decided to collect 
how much as much money as would buy a wagon. We sent the wagon, sent the money to the, the to the manufacturers, and they returned it. They refused to supply. Said we have to deal with our, their ordinary tailor, traders. We sent it then to Dublin to the Cooperative Wholesale Society, in Dublin, and they returned it and said they're only dealing with societies. A strange thing it is that I'm one of the directors of the Cooperative Wholesale Society in Dublin now, but. Long before I became director, they decided to sell their manures to anybody. I had nothing to do with that. They sell it now to any, any person that wants it. So we got the manures home, and then the traders had a meeting. They decided uh, at that meeting, they suggested it was interfering with legitimate business, and the shop boys got more bitter than the traders themselves. And the shop we were dealing in, my wife went over with her basket of eggs, and the shop boy said to her, didn't, uh, didn't better the time of day, up to that he would say, how are you, Mrs. Gellar? Tell Mr. Gellar not to kill himself working. And two customers in front, he served them, and the next girl come in, he served her, and he didn't better the time of day, and she said, Neil, he's still in America. Neil Camel, she said, you're not going to take my eggs. Give me goods in exchange. And he says, what do you want? What do you want? And finally... He, he took the eggs and gave the goods in exchange and she came home and I was out with the wheat plough in the field and she called me in when the tea was ready and she said, Paddy, take your tea. She says, but I'm not going back to that shop again. You must start a cooperative society. Paddy the Cope had a great sense of the dramatic and there was a good deal of the showman in him as when, for example, he chartered a boat to bring foodstuffs from Glasgow to Burtonport during what he said was a blockade of the Rosses by the big unionist merchants of Derry. The writer, Pather O'Donnell, must be one of the few who were not impressed. He played the clown a great deal of showing off. Uh, that was a kind of vanity in him. But uh, these are minor weaknesses compared to the great achievement in building the hope. I mean, it, there was a great drama, too, in his bringing in supplies by boat well, to Burtonport. Well, that, that was part of the showmanship, and I mean, there was no reason why lorries couldn't go out and take stuff in, and um, the railway was cut at Letterkenny, but there was no blockade, and Paddy talked of running the blockade, which was just nonsense. There was no such thing as a blockade. But there was a genuine struggle with the Gombean men, wasn't there? Well, the Gombean men have, have been... They, they have been, I think, badly wronged in the picture of them that emerged. They undoubtedly, um, nobody ever heard of a, of a Gombean man evicting anybody, not like the landlord time. But they, the, the, the Gombean men give long credit to weak families and very often paid the fare for, to America for the eldest boy or girl and had to wait for their money. I'm sure they charged considerable interest on the, on the on the debts but they they did a useful service in the, in holding the families together until they were able to earn their and yes uh, they weren't very popular obviously well they weren't popular to the intellect they were they they the shopkeepers were the home rulers and they they got left behind in the struggle for independence, but Paddy himself had no ideas either of that. It wasn't that 
It was his customers swept on past the shopkeepers. Paddy, Paddy went with his customers. Was uh, Paddy really a capitalist at heart, do you think? No, I don't think. You couldn't say he was a capitalist, a man that had no concern for advancing himself completely at all. He was just building up the cope. He was very anti-trade union and sacked on the spot uh, the f- uh, fellow who talked about introducing a trade union into the shop. That was a, that was a weakness in him. He, 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 he really wanted to run the whole show himself and he had a fear that the coming in of the trade unions would interfere with his freedom of choice, decisions and so on. The success of Patrick Gallagher's Temple Crone Cooperative Society has perhaps obscured the fact that it was by no means the first co-op in Donegal. Patrick Bolger, Development Officer for Donegal and author of the Comprehensive History and Development of the Irish Cooperative Movement, published earlier this year. In fact, by 1906 there, were, there had been over 60 cooperatives of different uh, types set up in the, in, in the county. Um, a great number of these were the, um, the the agricultural credit banks, the village banks, as they were known, and the Raffaison system that evolved in Germany, and which were very similar to our modern day credit unions. Paddy's uh, story is very interesting historically, from the point of view that he's the he's a very clear link with the English movement. As you know, that the Rochdale retail store movement is uh, commonly pinned down to the little cotton town of uh, uh, Rochdale in Lancashire, 1844, where the 28 poor weavers of Rochdale started their little shop. Now, Paddy's contact was in Scotland, where this movement had developed, and there was a a Rochdale-type little retail shop in Pumperstown, where where he worked, the end, and where uh, his wife, his good wife Sally, whom he speaks of so affectionately in his book, she bought all her groceries, she collected a dividend on purchases, she saved up money every week and put it away. In fact, this was the, the method to which he bought the, the Cleandra farm. And he came back and settled in Cleandra uh, outside Dunlow. His first contact with the new modern cooperative movement in Ireland, uh, Plunkett and Father Tom Finlay and the people, was with the Agricultural Credit Bank in uh, in, in Dunlow, which had been started in 1903. During the war, First World War, things got very bad, and credit was stopped by all the shopkeepers. But by the cook took out the money, a currency of his own. And he issued, anybody wanted credit, he, he lent them 10 or 20 or 30 pounds, but that had to be, that was only transferable by buying goods, you see, in the cook. So it worked all right. But Paddy the Cook done more for Dunlow and the area than all the TDs that ever was. And he had he hadn't much education, but he had good brains. At the time of the credit, 
He gave them, he gave them the chance that time by issuing his own money. He got all the girls in the country, he started the factories, he started everything. And he took a chance, he never looked. He never, he never judged nothing but go ahead. He went away one day to, to Scotland with a, with a boat load of herring. A small boat, I think it was Connie de Venice. And everyone thought he was mad, he landed over in Scotland. He was the first man to bring a trawler to Donegal. That was a big trawler now, like. And he bought two of them. I remember seeing them, like, from the very old. And he used to fish off Kelly Beggs. So salt that him was very hard to get, like, there were no didn't get in much salt at a time. So this thing he decided then to bring a load of heron across to Aberdeen in Scotland and to bring back a load of salt. So he brought over the heron to Aberdeen and he had no licence, so they wouldn't take the heron from him. So for whoever he got in contact in, in Glasgow, some of them men that started them co-ops there too, they helped him and he got rid of the, the load of heron. He sold them. And he brought back a lot of salt then. And that was the, the start of it. What uh, use did he make of the salt? For curing heron in Burton Port. And he used to have what they call keppers, make keppers at him, you know, smoke them. And he had a good few people employed there fishing too. And he, even small boats, half-deckers to call them too. He was a pioneer then in the fishing oh, business? Oh, he was, he was, yes. Aye. And uh, would you say he did a lot to encourage the fishing around... Burton port to help it along. These big boats, I would say, uh, there would never be a big boat round here or any for them. They've seen then, they've got new nets then, these trawling nets. And after that then, some of the boys here bought other boats too. And that was the start of the trawlers and Kelly Beggs in Burton port. During the war, had it not been for Paddy the Cope, the people in this part of the country would have a very difficult time to survive. He chart went over to England and he chartered boats and the block headed him. And he brought over the necessaries of life that for the people uh, right into the pier in Dunlow and distributed then through the cooperative movement. That was during the first war? That was war. during the 1914 war. He started a factory then, and he was the instigation of putting all the girls to start the first employment here. There was no employment here, only go to County Tyrone. It was the first factory, or it was the first business that was ever started here, was when the war broke out, they were making woolen gloves for the soldiers that was out in Flanders and out at the war, and uh, uh, through... Uh, whatever information Paddy got from his legal advisors in Belfast or Dublin or wherever he was, that was uh, the preposition that he started a factory. He had the factory it was an old hall that the cooperative built for holding meetings beforehand and it was uh, transformed into a factory. All was to be got was the machinery and the machinery were got and there was up to uh, Three and four hundred girls working there and making gloves, and they used to tow the gloves at night. Uh, you know, put the uh, finish the the the, the fingering or the the tone of the, uh, and then he had a crowd of hand knitters knitting as well, uh, rough hand knitted gloves for the cold winter, and. Uh, 
went through a terrible lot of employment. Had it not been for Parry the Cope during that time, that people would have no means of existence at all. In the slump which followed World War I, many store co-ops fell asunder, but Temple Crone managed to survive that crisis as it had survived many others. Pat Bulger. Paddy had had a few good years behind him, starting in 1906, you see, and he, uh, all over the years of the war, he had capitalised and run a pretty good good business. He suffered too, you know, but he was able to survive, whereas the ones that were formed during the war years, and towards the latter end of the war years, if you read my book, you'll notice that cooperation was really coming to be understood and believed in, you know. But then the co-ops that had been set up in 19 and 17, 18, 19, they hadn't much time to establish themselves. The economy of the Rosses, no, it's, uh, it's still, although the, the agriculture is essentially a, a very poor one, it's still one of the big earners. Tourism is another, and, uh, and fishing. There was major involvement in, in all these things by Temple Crone in, uh, in the pre-1920 days, and, and indeed even, even later. You know, this has declined, and uh, far from being a multi-purpose comprehensive co-op, I think it has uh, closed in very much into being... Uh, uh, retail Rochdale type of a job. Nothing wrong with that, but um, the idea of AE of a, a cooperative comprehending all all a community's business. I think that was a, an idea that was lost. You see, after the twenties, but it's coming back very strongly now. And I think this is where Temple Crone must reach out now again to become a multi-purpose comprehensive co-op. The present-day all-purpose store of Temple Crone Co-op occupies a large stretch of the main street of Dunlow. The Cope also runs a bakery and a knitwear factory and has six service centres in the Rosses. It employs up to 90 people and has a turnover of about £2 million. But with all this expansion, has it in fact become more removed from the ordinary people, from the more intimate cooperative involvement of the early days? Pather O'Donnell. No, I don't think it is. They don't think it's really a cooperative store now because there's no really important rival in the town, and we have a shopkeeper. In the eyes of the people, it's their shop, and I suppose that's as good a definition of cooperation as you want to get. And it's still very important in the Dunlow area and all around the Rosses. Oh, it's still very influential. It's a, as a as a as a as a as um, um, a trading enterprise, and um, Paddy had a very sharp eye for for opportunity. He did the bakery and did, did the lighting of the town, did all that sort of thing. The, the anything that was any possibility there was of developing something that was for the good of the co-op, Paddy would pounce on it. Pat Bulger thinks that the Temple Crone of today suffers from a disability common to nearly every co-op, a lack of interest and commitment on the part of members and a failure to involve them on the part of the committee. As a people, the Irish people, more so perhaps than any other people in the world, were very sensitive 
to what we call the, the half-hearted invitation. It's not enough to write out a formal notice of the uh, annual general meeting. I think the... the, the and send that out and to the members send and expect them to assemble. Yeah, and accept them to assemble. I think then the management, the members of the management committee must reach out to the individual member and uh, embrace them and uh, get them get them in. You have to bring them in. When you have them in, you have to have something for them to do. You must make, make some, some new departures. Paddy, the Cope was a great man, a great entrepreneur. He built a great, he built great structures, business structures in many ways. But cooperative education, in the real sense, never got off the ground in the Rosses, and I, uh, dare I say, it hasn't got off the ground yet. You know, and I think this is something that we, we will have to uh, to to, uh, to get involved in because uh, the, the lifeblood, even the economic success of a venture depend so much on this. And of course a great deal of the success of the Temper Crone Co-op depended on the personality of its founder and on the way people identified with him. Dr Eugene McDermott of Aaron Moore, who was cured for many years in the Cope's native parish of Mina Crusha. I think you remember him most by the shops, but I think the ordinary person remembers him best by the lorries he put on the road. The Cope lorry, here comes the Cope lorry. And... You remember all the lads that used to work in the Cope. There was a whole gang of them. There was a whole army of boys who were working in the Cope, you know. But in a way, it's no longer the kind of co-op that was there in the original days when you had the ordinary people concerned in it. It's now just a big supermarket in a way. I suppose that is so. But still, in all people feel that they have a sort of a communal interest in it, you know. You still take shares in it, I think. Mm. And you still feel, but certainly I suppose it's, it's different to what it was in the beginning. Yeah, when there was the old committee and when they decided things themselves. It's different to that now. And then the Cope himself was a large part of it. He, he was, yeah. yeah. And, and his own personality. His own personality. Ah, people liked him very much. They were very fond of him. You saw that everywhere he went. You know, he, he was a character in his own right. And he was very popular, too, for speaking on public occasions. And he could be so humorous, you know, and it suddenly changed the trend of conversation, you know, with a humorous twist. I was talking about one time, I remember, a speech um, in regard to ethnic Harbury down in Frosses. And, you know, he talked about the places he was. I was in America, I was in, I was in Saskatchewan, I was in Newfoundland, and I was in jail, he said. <laughs> <laughs> he Which was, was true. responsible for taking the light to the town. He um, used to go out to the dam there, the dam, the water out here for the light. And he used to go out to the dam himself when the, some of the boys at night would switch off the dam and leave us in darkness. And he would go out himself and get into the dam and dam it up again to get the light back. He always worked hard, apparently. Worked hard, and he worked with the people. He would, we would think nothing of going into a, the mines out in Crowy and working along with the men. I think that's why the men liked him so well, you know. He 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 done a share of the work too, and he was he was he was very good to his workers, very good. Yeah, and yet there were little mean streaks in him too, you know. Well, he could be mean he, enough about he, small amounts. Small of money. amounts, of money. Mm. He would. Uh, be very small in little things, you know. He would, he'd be very miserable in little things, and then he would think nothing of going out and helping somebody that he would need help. 
sisters used to be always kind of on his back, you know, telling him he was doing too much and that he wasn't um, doing things right. Of course, if he got an idea, he would go through with it, and he, maybe sometimes would, his ideas would fail. And uh, they would be always giving out to him that it was crazy doing these things. But he kept at it, you know, and he, some of his ideas were very bright, and he got away with them. There was lots of things he would do, you know, that the sisters used to be embarrassed at him. Little things. The time Barbara Moore was, the papers were given a big write-up to Barbara Moore. He used to sunbathe, and he would follow up our diets very much. And um, he used to fish a lot. He eat an awful lot of fish, oatmeal, porridge. But uh, we used to get on to him for sunbathing in the nude because he would go out to the yard and sunbathe in the nude. And we... Uh, he wouldn't we worry who saw him. Oh, not at all. It didn't worry him at all. No, he, he couldn't He couldn't care less. He was a great man for walking, too. Yeah, he walked a lot. Yeah, he... Oh, he didn't... He, he used to walk all round the place. He was a very healthy man. And I think it was his diet, mostly. He ate an awful lot of fish and... He used to get eels, a certain type of an eel, and cook it. And one time, there's little sheens that fish along the shore here, and one time he decided he was going to can these sheens. And he tried one of them out on me, of course, but uh, it wasn't a success. He used to like honey. And he had a very sweet tooth. He liked to have a lot of little dainty sweets, like you know, desserts of any kind. He was very fond of desserts. And... Um, I think myself that it was due to the way he eat. He did take a drink, but I didn't never saw him drunk. I never saw him in his life drunk. Oh yes, he was full of life, you know, full of life. Didn't worry. I was here was a man that didn't worry a lot, you know. He was confined to bed for a few years before he died, you know. But uh, he was no great trouble, I must say. It was very good, and we missed him an awful lot when he went, because he had lived with us so very long. He was a great miss. He was so ninety-five or six almost. When he, he died. was in his ninety-fifth year. You'd have been. He was born on Christmas Day and very proud of it. Very proud of it. He said he was born with a curl, one of these head caps. You say. He was very proud of the fact he was born on a Christmas Day. So he was just six months short of his ninety-fifth birthday when he went. He never smoked at all, I believe. Never smoked. Never. He liked a wee dram, though. He did. Uh, now and again, you know, he was far from being an alcoholic, <laughs> I must say. But he liked a wee dram. Now and again, as opposed to was a boost, and in latter years, he liked his wee drop of punch. Mm. And they say, too, that like many big business tycoons, yeah. you know, he could be very careful about uh, small things, small oh, amounts. Small amounts is right. He looked after every iota. Mind you, there'd be no waste paper or waste cord lying about when he was around. <laughs> no, Paddy the Cook never made anything for himself. He was all for the Cook. And when he died, I don't think he, he had much money left because they were all into the Cook. And he didn't leave any of his family rich or, you know, he, he made no provision for anything, only for the Cook. 